And I think that's what we're all praying for and longing for. Now, the, the title, if you did not happen to pick up a, a fill-in-the-blank outline on the way in, you may not know what the title of today's lesson is. Love is as love does. And, and as soon as I, as I typed that, when I was working on this lesson, I, I thought that sounds like something Forrest Gump would come up with. And uh, so, but, but I don't do a Forrest Gump impression except mentally. And, and so w- once we understand what real love is in Scripture, I think it clarifies the picture for us in all of our relationships in life. I'm not just talking husband and, and wife or even parent-child. In, in every relationship of life, understanding what the Bible means when it uses the word, that four-letter word love, is absolutely imperative. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to start, and I hope I, you'll hang with me for just a moment when, when we do a grammar lesson. Most of you know already that the, the original language of the New Testament was Koine Greek. Not classical Greek, but the common street language of Greek-speaking people. And so, in the Greek language, there are four different words for our one English word, love. And, and, and I have to say, that's one of the things that kind of confuses us. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with God's revelation. I'm saying that there's something wrong with the receptor language, that our English language is so limited that we don't have as four, four different words for the word love because we all know that we use the word love in so many different ways. I love puppies. I love old pickup trucks. I love my wife, and I love you too. I mean, we, we use that word kind of as a catch-all universal uh, word to describe our affections, uh, for for just about anything or or anyone, one of the words that uh, in the Greek language that is translated word uh, as the word love is the word eros or eros, and and that's uh, the affection between the sexes. That's the the reality of human sexuality. That's uh, the the love, the physical love between a husband and his wife. And so, secondly, there's the word storge, and that's family love, love in the family. We get our, the, the, the expression that uh, blood is thicker than water from this concept, that we, we have a special affection for those who are a part of our own physical families, and I think that we all understand and acknowledge that. Then there's phileo love. This is kind of where the confusion sets in, because a lot of people in our world use the word love when, when they do, they're thinking of phileo love because phileo love is literally experiencing joy in the presence of someone. This is describing an emotion and affection. So it's, it's more like when I like you as opposed to when I love you. And then the greatest, most supreme form of love is the Greek word agape. Now, I know that I'm, I, I'm preaching to people who already know most of this, but, but it's imperative, I think, that we reestablish this foundation for today's discussion. And today I want us to be talking about this supreme form of love that God speaks of so frequently in Scripture. And he uses this to describe the relationship and the love that we ought to have toward one another in the church, toward our enemies, Matthew 5.44, as we'll see in just a moment, and, and, and all the other aspects of a supreme love. And it can best be defined as seeking someone else's highest good, even above our own. When I'm seeking someone else's greatest interest above my own, then that is agape love. Now, we need to know that. 
But uh, uh, even though the lesson may sound like something that, uh, that Forrest Gump came up with, I, it, what, what we're going to be talking about in the next few minutes is absolutely imperative, I think, for all of us to, to fully appreciate what God had in mind when he told us to love one another. And although the most recent numbers on, on marriage in America indicate that about 90% of us will at some point in life be married or, or try to be married, still, even for those 10% who do not, the chances are that at some point in your life you will fall in love. And yet even the expression being in love is, is really a misnomer if you think about love the way the Bible defines it. A, a meaningless, heart-thumping rush that, that's fun while it lasts, and it's so profound that nobody will be able to talk you out of it. I mean, when you're in love, nobody can talk you out of being in love with that particular person. But, but let me tell you right now, the fact that, that nobody can talk you out of it is proof positive to you that it's the real thing. Whether, wherever you may be in, on your journey through life, crushes, infatuation, puppy love, these are all tricks of the mind and of the heart. But still, we have to admit that when it happens to you, you're convinced that in your case it is different, at least somehow. No one has ever loved anyone the way I love him or her, you'll say. This is bigger, more cosmic, more real, more spiritual, more dramatic, and it is certainly deeper than any love that I've ever felt before. You know, the truth is that your feelings may in fact be based more on, on just looks or even personality. It's deeper. It's not superficial. You may even fall in love with someone's mind, her, her way of expressing herself, her, her body language. But listen to me. It'll pass. Because this kind of love, as we define it loosely, Always does. But when you're in the throes of it, you'll not be dissuaded. And you'll say that no one has ever experienced and felt what I'm experiencing right now. You will say this, this love is eternal. I remember, and I may be in the next few minutes telling you more about me than you want to know, but I'm sorry. Here goes. I remember the first time I fell in love. I, I was ready and ripe for it. It was the summer before my senior year in high school, and it was a Bible summer camp relationship, so you know it was real. <laughs> now, I, I had had girlfriends and dated some nice girls and had someone to walk to class with, but I'd never been in love, at least not yet. This girl was special. She was a Christian. She was attractive. She was quick smiling. She loved to talk, and she loved to listen. She would look you in the eye whenever you were talking to her. But as crazy as it seems, by the way, I know all of those indicators tell you that she was way out of my league. But as, it, as crazy as, as it seems, she seemed to be as interested in me as I was in her. First time we held hands, I was smitten. What a boon to the self-confidence. A girl that everybody can see was a knockout was going with me. Going with me. I doodled her name in my notebook. I found reasons to travel the distance from my town to her town to be with her. And I lived for the weekends when that could be made possible. Just holding her hand was heavenly. It was better than, than any athletic success that I'd ever had. And that's really saying something when you're talking about a 16 or 17 year old boy. To put a finer point on it, I was in love. Or at least I convinced myself that it was the real thing. 
The, the only question I had about the relationship was, how could anything be more beautiful and more perfect than that? You see, for me, it was fun while it lasted, and it remains to this day a harmless memory. But here's the problem with my all-too-common story, and here's also the truth that I want you to remember, the, the major takeaway from this lesson this morning. Being in love is not love. Now, the world doesn't know that. And there are a lot of people in the kingdom of Christ that don't know that. They, they've completely misconstrued what love is. No wonder our divorce rate is some 50% right now because a lot of people go into a relationship with a permanence of marriage with, with a complete, completely misconstrued idea of what real love is and how to be able to hold that, that marriage together and how not only to, to be able to thrive in that marriage relationship, but, but to, to make it grow stronger every day and, and to eventually come out of that on the other end of it when one or the other of them passes into eternity to be able to say, I, I understood what I was doing. I understood what I was getting into because I know what God's grammar says on the subject. Now, here's a truth you can hang your hat on, folks. Love is not a feeling. It is not a state of being. And, and that's the primary thing I want to communicate to you this morning. You see, as cold, as un, unromantic as that may seem, to say that, that, that just being in love is not really love, well, I don't know any other way to express it except in a personal way. I am not in love with my wonderful wife, Mia, in the way the world thinks of love. I love her, but I also have to recognize that the foundation of my love for her is an act of will. Now, that's the cold mechanical part of it. It is, I, I make a decision every day when I get up that I am going to love my wife. I, again, I know that sounds nonsensical to people who've never read Scripture and who do not understand the four different Greek words translated as love in our English language. But that's really the, the way it is. Now, now, the good news is that when I act right toward her or when you and I act, act right toward anyone, what we want to feel toward that person will eventually come. You see, the world has turned it around. That kind of love that the world feels and expresses is not the, is, is not the, the root of love, but it can be the fruit of love. So we act right, then we will come to feel right. And that's even true in our relationship with God. A lot of people feel like, well, when I start feeling really uh, adoring and, and, and close to God, then I will come and worship him. And so they don't bother to show up much of the time. But they've turned it around. What they need to do is to do the right thing on Sunday morning and Sunday night and every day of the week. And then they will find that their feelings toward God have changed. They've deepened. They've ripened. They are what God would have them to. Now, I hope that you have not come from the things that I've said already to think of marriage as some kind of burdensome assignment because I know that you know better. I loved my wife's parents. I, I liked them. I talked to them. I, I tried to show affection to them. I preached the funerals for both of them. And I cried my eyes out doing it. But while it was a, relation, a love relationship... Even the love that I had for those godly people was, was a verb. 
It was not a noun. And that's what I want us to understand this morning. That first time I fell in love, what or whom was I in love with? That, that's the question. I thought I loved the girl. She smiled a lot. She, she smelled nice. But looking back, I don't know whether I liked what she said so much as the fact that she said it to me. I was in love with the idea of being in love. And I know that you've heard that expression. It, it felt great to be the object of of someone else's attention, especially someone who was impressive to others. And it did wonders to my ego. And I'll confess even today that I like being married to a woman that others think of as wonderful and beautiful, and she is. But that is not the basis for love as a verb. Now, to put a lid on my past love life, much to your relief, I'll just say that I came to realize that I could not be in love with someone that I didn't really even know all that well. And we both, both walked away from that relationship as friends. Now, that wasn't the last time I fell in love. By the time I met the woman who was to become my wife, I learned a little bit about this whole infatuation thing. For one thing, I, I knew enough about myself and the girls I dated to know that the infatuation stage would pass. Have I mentioned this already? It always does. The infatuation stage, the warm fuzzies, the puppy love, always passes. And I'm happy to say that the crush, the rush, and the warm fuzzies I felt for Mia were, were light years ahead of what I had ever felt for anyone before. But if they weren't, that would be okay too. I wasn't about to marry someone with whom I was hopelessly in love because that is not a good basis for marriage, just the feeling of affection. And even though Mia and I dated for less time than anyone else I'd ever dated, and even though we were engaged and, and married within a few months, by the way, this is the part of the sermon where I say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> Ours was the most honest and the most upstanding relationship I had ever been in, bar none. Now, I'm not saying in the least that once I got to know my wife, I lost all feelings of love for her. I'm not saying that at all. The truth is, I feel immensely blessed because my wife is so easy to love. But that blind, head-over-heels, puppy-love, crush, infatuation... Again, I have to say, eventually goes away because it always does. And, and watch this. Love became an action verb in our relationship instead of a state of being. If you are looking for a time in your life when you can be in love, you are looking in the wrong direction. What we need to be doing in all of our relationships, and I'm not just talking about boy-girl relationships, I'm talking about our relationship at work, our relationship with our families, our relationship with everyone, is to try to the best of our ability to practice and exercise the supremest form of love to everyone, even our enemies, and that is to seek their highest good, their greatest welfare, even above our own. And Jesus gives us this promise, if we will do that, we will transform the world. One person at a time. And yes, I read the newspaper just like you do. I watch the news just like you do. I know what's going on in the world, in our nation, and even in our state. And I know that people are at one another's throats right now. And the only thing that will solve that problem long term is to practice the kind of love that is so beautifully and powerfully set forth in Scripture. It isn't by being in love with everyone... It isn't even making sure that I feel right toward everybody in my neighborhood, in my city, and in my world. It is making sure that every day I wake up with a concrete decision that I'm going to seek everyone's greatest good, even above my own, if that is at all possible. All of these things, I think, will help us to understand 
how important it is that, that we understand and then we practice this kind of love. Now, but before I'm, I want to give you kind of a subset of a grammar lesson, the difference in the noun and the verb love, I, I have to say this. Before when I said, I love you, I, I could just as easily have said, I'm crazy about you. I idolize you. I can't help myself. You are everything to me. All of those things, you know, that you'll read in a Hallmark card. I could easily have said those things. But now when I tell my wife or my family, I love you, I could be saying just as well, I choose to put you ahead of me. I want you to have what you need. I want to do a dirty job that you had rather not do. I want your life to be better because I am here to make it so. Now, later in marriage, you'll find that true love doesn't ask, what do you think of me now? That's not what true love does. True love asks, can I pick up the kids so that you don't have to? Can I run an errand for you? Can I save you some time, some grief, some discomfort? I would be happy to do that. If you do that consistently, I think that you will see a change in that relationship. What can I do to act out my love for you is the question that every one of us ought to be, be asking, especially if we're married already. And, and yes, I know that it's, it's, the, it's very easy to be the one in the marriage relationship who's always letting the other one act out their love for you in tangible ways. But you see what I'm driving at. And I can't really, I can't say it too many times. True love, pure love, agape love, unconditional love is not something that you fall into. Love is an act of will. Love is as love does. So don't be in love, decide every day to love. And while we're on the subject of unconditional love, let me say this, that that kind of love, unconditional love really is divine in nature, and I mean quite literally. Uh, there's no way, I, I, I mean, this is just my judgment, but, and I noted it as such. There is no way that, that we are capable of pure, true, unconditional love because that is the domain of the divine. I, I, I really believe, having read this book through a number of times and, and lived life for a while, that we cannot love unconditionally the way God loves unconditionally. Now, it's certainly a God concept, and to the risk of seeming flippant, I, I have to say that it's one of his greatest attributes, and he is very, very good at loving people unconditionally, even when they don't love him back. And I think that we would all be in agreement on that statement. You see, God's love is perfect. It is, it is not infatuation. He does not have a crush on us. The golden text of the Bible does not say God was so in love with the world that he gave his son. It says God so loved the world. There's the action verb. He so loved the world that he demonstrated that love by giving us his son to die on the cross. Instead, the Bible uses an action verb there. Now, he knew all about us, and yet he loved us just the same. That's the wonder of it, isn't it? When we contemplate the love of God for us, how that God can know us best and yet still love us the way he does, or as Paul expressed it in Romans 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Some translations of that verse read, he extended his love toward us, also an action verb. Others of them say God showed his love to us. That also, as you note, is an action verb. 
None of them say that God was so enamored with us that he was blind to our faults and that he thought that we were simply wonderful. There is no language like that in Scripture. His love is real love. It is unconditional love. It's the love of a creator whose creation has broken his heart over and over again. And yet he loves us. Isn't that the most amazing thing about God's love? He, he loves us in spite of ourselves. And he loves us to the point of death. The death of his only son on that cross that we have just commemorated. So let's review. How did God love us? By sending us a stack of Valentine cards. No. We see the love of God for mankind epitomized by Jesus, his, his bloody mangled body hanging on Calvary's cross. Now, I, I really wish that I could comprehend, let alone model or even explain that kind of love, but I can't. We're, we're talking about the mind and the heart of God here. God loves the unlovable, people that you could never possibly even like. Now, let's tie all that together as we end this lesson. And I want to I do that by do, doing something I've done a lot of in the last few months. I realize this, but if you will, go back to Luke chapter 15. Let's look one more time, just quickly, at a couple of lessons, a couple of takeaways from the parable of the prodigal son. Because this biblical example of, is really telling us what kind of love that the father in that, in that parable had for his son. Let me throw an idea out here, if I, if I may, for your consideration if you're looking at Luke 15 already, I believe that there's no way that this father could have liked his son. And I'm using the word liked there in the phileo love dimension of feeling joy in the presence of. I mean, all we know about that, that prodigal son was over and over again he had broken his father's heart. So his, the love for his son is made clear in Scripture. I mean, that's what the par parable of the prodigal son is all about, isn't it? How the immense, endless, unconditional love of the father for his son. But, but who could love a boy who was so selfish that he, that he wanted his share of his dad's money? He wanted it right now. He could not wait to get out from under his father's rule. He wanted to leave and do his own thing without his father's interference. So he was selfish and he was wasteful and he was insensitive. And all of those negative words, I think, would apply to, to the younger son in this story. Now, today's father, probably caught in that same conundrum, would wait, say to his son, listen, if this money was not legally yours, if you did not have a third of everything that I'd work for coming to you, I would never let you have it. I mean, you, you've been a rotten, self-centered kid your whole life. And now you're going to leave the best situation and the most security that you've ever known, and you're going to go to a far country, and you're going to squander your inheritance if I've got all of this right. Let me, let me ask you this. Do you really think that it was a surprise to the father in the prodigal son story that his son returned home? I don't. I mean, the implication, at least in Scripture, is that he, he looked for the return of his son every day. He longed for the return of his son every day. I, I think in the mind of that father, the return of his son was not a matter of whether. It was a matter of when. He, now, he might have hoped that his son would come home happy and prosperous, but I really think that in his heart, he knew better. He couldn't have liked him. He just could not have, have experienced joy in the presence of that kind of boy. He could not have liked what he had done. But his love was still unconditional. 
Because I'll remind you that the Father in this story represents God, and God is able to love people unconditionally. Now, the hardest thing a father will ever do is powerfully portrayed in this same parable. One of the hardest things that the father had to do was to accept that his son was turning his back on his advice and counsel. Everything that the father had tried to teach his son and how he had tried to raise him up and train him, all of that was being rejected. And I think that's probably the hardest thing. Not just the money thing. I think that the fact that he was turning his back on everything his father stood for and had tried to teach him was probably the hardest thing for him to take. Now, he would have helped that boy if he'd stayed at home, taught him, shown him, done anything to make him feel secure. And when the boy returned home after dragging his father's name and fortune through pig slop, how did the father react? Oh, sure, you run off against my wishes, squander the fortune I provided for you, and now you come crawling back home expecting me to bail you out. Now, you don't don't read any of that in Luke 15. You know the story better than that. There was a, a ring for his finger, a robe for his back, and a fatted calf for his stomach. There was even a jealous older brother thrown into this story for good measure. Listen to me. Unconditional love is worth being jealous of. And we have that element by divine design introduced in this scripture. But what the jealous brother didn't realize was the fact that he too was loved unconditionally. He simply had shown love for his father by not putting his father to such a, his father's love to such a severe test. Nothing in life is sadder than unconditional love pushed to its limits. And I, I know by definition, unconditional love has no limits. But that's where the supernatural work of God comes in. Because we're human, we're finite, we're frail. We do not have in us, in us to, to love unconditionally in the same way that God does. Now, as with romantic love, this love is as love does. Only God can love someone unconditionally. And, and, and we should long to be his instruments, I think, in that. And that doesn't mean that a child or a spouse can't ever say or do something that will affect the way that a parent may think of them as a person. We know better, those of us who have been parents do at least. It doesn't determine whether you like their person, their character, or their values. I know of parents... And I'm not saying this to be trying to be funny. I know of parents who don't like their kids at all. But they love them with an intensity that you can only love another human being. That's because they're squared away on the grammar of this relationship. They know that love is not a feeling, it's not a thing, but it's an act of will. It's a decision that you make to seek someone else's highest good. And if you're still someone's kid, and you're still sticking your feet under mom and dad's table, and you're still sleeping in a bed in a room that they have provided, I want to speak to you for just a moment. Please know that if you thumb your nose at your upbringing, and you set your course on a road to consumption and addiction and materialism and hedonism and egotism and all the other isms that you will find in the far country, do not expect your parents to be enablers. Do not expect them to finance a degenerate lifestyle. But by the same token, I have to say this, nothing that you can say or do will determine or reroute their love for you, love in the supremest form. That's because loving is not a state of being. It's an action verb, an act of will. Love is the act of doing. Love is as love does. 
Now, right now, there's some parents who are in this auditorium and who are out there online listening to this message who are already looking ahead to the time when your kids will graduate high school, go off to college perhaps, and you will have an empty nest. I mean, you are anticipating that with a high level of anticipation. And I understand how that works. And those parents know that there will be times when they will have to discipline themselves in order to keep their distance from you even after, or maybe I should say, especially after you have flown the nest and left home. That they will have to work to not be helicopter parents even after you're gone. If you as a son or a daughter decide to exercise your free will, and you decide to exercise that escape clause in your parent-child contract, let me tell you this. They will not come to the far country of sin to bail you out. They will not force themselves on you. They will not try to be your buddy. They will not try to embarrass you before your friends in order to manipulate you into coming back home. But you'll still know where they are. They're still at home. They're keeping the faith. And they're sitting on the front porch with the front porch light on, praying for your return. And they'll talk to you the way they do now. Nothing, nothing will be off limits. Nothing that you can do will so disappoint or shock them that the door to conversation is closed because that's all a part of love as an action. Now let me tell you straight up, loving unconditionally is a risk. And I hope that we appreciate this morning just maybe from this study, we've got some glimpse into the idea that, that God's love for us is unconditional and that is the greatest risk that could ever be run. The fact that, that God could give his son to die for lost humanity and that most of humanity will reject that sacrifice, that vicarious death, is a tremendous risk that God was willing to take. Knowing that most people will reject the sacrifice of his only son, God said, I'm still going to do it for those who will accept. Folks, that's powerful stuff. And that's one of the reasons why we're here this morning instead of someplace else. You know, parents can expect respect and obedience and even a certain amount of familial love from their children. But I want you to know that we as parents are no more worthy of unconditional love than, than you are as young people. You can't earn it. it. It isn't a right of parenthood or childhood for that matter. But remember this most of all. Love is not a state of being. It is an act of will. Now, if there was only one verse that, that, that proves this love is an action concept, it would be John fourteen fifteen, And I want to end this study with that passage. That's where Jesus very profoundly but simply said, if, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, you may be thinking, man, that's cold and mechanical. He says nothing at all about how we ought to feel toward him. Nothing about affection or emotion is in that verse at all. He just said, if you love me, you'll show it by keeping my commandments. But you know what? That's still right 2,000 years later. That's still the way we show that we love God. Not just by coming and singing a thousand verses of, oh, how I love Jesus. It's by, by every day of our lives, consistently, to the best of our ability, living the way he would have us to live. Keeping all of his commandments. So it's not really cold and mechanical at all, and here's why. I mentioned this earlier. I want to mention it again as we end. There is a biblical guarantee written by the very finger of God that if you will act right towards someone, you will eventually come to feel the way you want to feel toward that person. 
And that's true in every human relationship. So I'm asking you this morning, as, we, as, as Izzy is about to lead us in the song of encouragement, do, do you love Jesus? We even have a song that asks that lyrical question. Do, do you love Jesus? But I want you to answer in the framework of what we've talked about this morning. Are you and have you done his commandments? Some of you need to, to make that initial step of, of saying, I want to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of my life. And, and I truly have repented of all my past sins. I want to confess his, his sweet name and I want to be baptized so that I can be in Jesus and have him wash my sins away. If, if you love the Lord, you're going to show it by what you do right now while we stand and while we sing. Sound this word of grace to all who the heavenly 